from the Northeast Forest Alliance 30th anniversary. You're with Environmental as Anything on River FM 92.9. On this auspicious occasion, when the um, when when NIFA came to um, came to our um, our little compartment 22 blockade. At Elands, it was it was an extraordinary eye opener. It was the beginning of probably the best family I've ever known in my life. But um, at one stage, I think we had 120 people camped camped in our mill, and um, of course there was encouragement out to the forest, out to the forest, <laughs> and um, and so um, we in the in the hundred square kilometres um, closed area of around compartment 22, Bulga State Forests, we had. Um, we knew we knew at least three or four camps. There were innominate camps that were sort of fluctuated, and nobody quite knew where they were. And there were continuous supply missions having to back, backpack stuff into them. And um, I was on a recce mission one one day, and um, anyway, I didn't jump off the road quite fast enough, and so the coppers grabbed me. I had my NATO suit, NATO tank suit on with gear sewn inside it. So they dragged me up to the radio hut up up on the up on the top, and um, a bit embarrassing. As they spoke, what they were saying came out of a radio in my pocket, and, and so so they um, so they peeled, peeled me bare and, um, and laid, laid out laid out the gear and sort of all marvelled at it. And they tried all their radios, and yes, they all came through. So, so something I was wearing. And, and, and um, anyway, they they sort of patted me on the back and sent, sent me home. I think it was kind of you know an award for enterprise rather than arresting me, which was a great thing. Um, we um, we carried on with um, with that blockade for oh god how long, how long it went weeks months even, and we were eventually bumped out bumped out of the forest. And um, and I'm not quite sure that the the banners happened at that event. But um, it's probably appropriate to, to mention it now. Um, we're all feeling feeling a bit bruised, you know, having been chucked out of the forest because clearly enough the state was prepared to put any amount of effort into into defending into getting these logs out and making an example of us. So um, it was near Christmas this time, and um, anyway, we thought that um, there were quite a few activists keen to keen to sort of make 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 our, our feelings public. Anyway, so back to the mill, prepared a huge pair of banners. You'll see on one of our um, display boards round round the back, Boral destroying your forests, and um, it was it was the biggest banners. I think I've still got them. They're a bit moth-eaten, but um, anyway, we we well, a partic- particularly brave friend allowed himself to be lowered down into the Ellenborough Gorge over the falls. I'd I'd made. <laughs> A bunch of little tin pitons to wedge wedge in the crevices, and these immense banners, which were tens of metres long each, um, we fast, fastened on onto the wall either side of the falls, and um, and so they got they got quite a, quite a few newspaper photographs and a, and a bit of TV coverage until um, until the, the council could find um, sufficiently qualified um, climbers. Who were prepared to descend into the gorge and so <laughs> and remove the things? They gave them back eventually, didn't they? Yep, they did. Anyway, there you go. Great. That was Greg. And uh, while Catherine's coming up, I'll just tell another little story about about Greg, which is particularly.
funny, Susan which is Russell. that um, just before that particular um, uh, event that he describes, we were we were uh, blocking a road to another area of old growth in Doyle's River State Forest, and and uh, we were sitting in camp, and um, I hadn't even walked through the forest. And one day, this bunch of young people—I didn't know any of them—they turned up, and we said, "Oh, look, would you mind?" holding the camp while we go for a walk. And they said, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. We wouldn't mind the camp. So they mined the camp and we all went off on a walk and came back at sort of dusk and there was no one around and thought, oh, there's no one around anyway. You know, typical young people can't, you know, can't mind the camp and still be here at the end of the day. And so it's not, it's another night on the road. And uh, and Chris was, there was a bulldozer. We were encamped in front of the bulldozer, stopping the bulldozer getting into the forest. And and um, Chris is in the bulldozer playing, you know, playing being a bulldozer driver in the dark. And he says, Greg, is this meant to be like this? And uh, Greg gets in, has a look, and he says, no, it's not. It's not meant to be like this. So, of course, the youth had decided that they were going to make some serious adaptations to the bulldozer. And um, because once Greg got in with his torch, there were all sorts of things that were wrong with it. You know, there were wires and... Anyway, bent handles, they'd done this, they'd done that. So he had to work all night to try and fix the bulldozer without, of course, being able to turn it on to know if it would work. And, um, and the next morning, the senior police for the area and his... Um, as police liaison, forest, they had a forest protest liaison officer in that day, those days. Anyway, they came around and so they drove up and um, said, you know, how are you going? We're just letting you know that we're going to come in on Monday. And uh, I sort of, I said, look, I'll just tell you what's happened. So I told them the story about what had happened, that we'd gone away and that this is what had happened to the bulldozer and we tried to fix it. But we really didn't know whether the next day the bulldozer was going to start or not. And they just said, oh, yeah, right, oh, okay, and off they went. And so the next day they turned up and Borrell turned up and the contractor turned up and made a big show of throwing all our stuff off the road and down the hill and whatever. And But we were actually all more nervous about whether or not the bulldozer was going to start. And um, so, you know, the driver gets into his bulldozer, Mr Betts, and... Um, <laughs> turns it on and moves up the hill and it was like, oh, phew, you know, that's all right. We, that was all right then. And uh, and so that was it. We were out. They had the compartment. You know, that was the end of that phase. Except what we didn't know was that they'd actually gone up the hill and done the Forestry Commission dozer as well. So, <laughs> so anyway, there was no work from that one for a while. But... Um, all right, Catherine, can I hand you this so you can tell your story? I'll just pass it down. That was Susie Russell from Nipa. Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, I'd just like to go back to the beginning of Chilundi and before the blockade actually happened. And there were a few of us that spent a lot of time before the blockade um, putting in place different actions that we thought were going to stop the whole show. We spent hours and hours making these amazing mandalas in the ground with all these stones that were actually going to ha- put a force field there. So, <laughs> so, so when the um, police came, they'd be pushed, ac- uh, you know, out of the way. And we, we actually put 
huge logs across the road. We actually lit fires. We did all this amazing stuff that was going to work. And they came in and they just went boing like that and just fucking pushed everything across. Everything we'd spent three months doing, they just knocked over in a second. It was just gobsmackingly horrible. (laughs) And... um, and I then when we put the bark, the pipes in the ground, the bark pipes in the ground, I actually can't tell you a lot about what happened because um, I thought I'd be in one on the side of the road so that I could climb out really easily and then be part of all the next action after, you know, when they were doing the bark pipes. What happened was I got stuck in the bark pipe on the side of the road and the action moved on while I'm screaming, help, I'm in the bark pipe. And, and, and I was there for hours and hours before somebody, I heard somebody, because the, uh, the, the action was rolling the whole time. It rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled right past me, way down the road and Mick Lonnenkin's up the tripod, everyone's up the tripod and I'm still in the bark pole because Belinda was supposed to be my buddy and forgot all about me completely. And in those, and finally I screamed and because you're like this, you can't actually get up out of it. You couldn't push your way out of them and it was dark by the time somebody actually found me. I was crying. I wasn't happy at all. <laughs> and then after, when they got me out, after that, that's when we smashed the holes in the side of the pipes so that people could actually see out and you could scream and you knew what was happening because I had no idea that everyone had moved on. And that's just one. And then I'm trying to remember, I actually thought I was snowing in Chilundi. Is it? Did I get the wrong blockade? Oh, there were so many blockers. I was damn sure I was underneath a tripod and it was snowing and then we had to climb up it. It was? Yeah. I remember lying, you had to sleep underneath your tripod on the the sleeping bag and I remember, was that... Oh, it's all... there, There were a lot of blockades, but I do remember them closing off Chilundi Forest and we I was in the team that actually walked over the mountain at night because that you weren't allowed to be able to be seen by the cops to get the water and then walk all the way back again. Was it Misty Creek we got the water from? Does it Yeah, right. So that's that was bloody mile kilometers over the hill with and then I walked back with 20k, 20 litres of water on our backs. And was it, did anyone else do that? Uh, right, okay then, only me. Uh, and uh, there were five, oh, oh, all I remember there were five of us and then by the mo- morning the sun came up and it was so hot, I ended up taking all my clothes off and I'm with these five guys with this thing on my back and they're saying, you be careful because the cops are around everywhere and you be careful, they'll, they'll catch you and you won't be able to walk away because look at you, you've got no shoes on, you've got no clothes on, bloody idiot. And then the cops came around the corner. I hid behind the tree <laughs> and because I was naked, they couldn't see any of my clothes. Everyone else got arrested except me. 
<laughs> I was very proud of myself. <laughs> um, um, uh, what else? I, I do remember being at a blockade somewhere near Maxville. I remember the Maxville service station, so I don't know what blockade that was. And my mistake, I think, where the cantilever was. Oh. Anyway, I remember being at Maxville and we were really against Boral at that time. We had all those stickers that said Boral are moral. And I remember I'd been hitchhiking. It was pouring with rain. It had been um, freezing cold and I'd been on, you know, trying to hitchhike back from Maxville to Kalang. How the fuck I thought I was going to get there. But anyway... And I'd been hitchhiking for about four hours and no one had pulled up at all. And then this truck pulled up and I went to get in and it was a bold truck. And I, he opened the door and I said, fuck off, you bastard, and shut the door. And the poor guy had no idea what he'd done wrong. It just was bad timing. I was really pissed off. I was there for another six hours, but I wasn't going to get in with that truck. I just remember that one. Um, and the Wild, Wild Cattle Creek, I remember we had the walk-in and what happened, I was with my girlfriend Judy and Django who are, aren't here with us at, and um, I remember Judy had a really straight girlfriend and there was a whole lot of people there all, and then there was a fire the whole of Wild Cattle Creek, there was a huge fire and the police came and the fire brigade came and told everyone they had to get out. And I said, no, we can't leave because we're having the walk-in the next day with 300 people going to come. Someone had to hold the fort. So we slept with our shoes on. There were five of us who were surrounded by fire and this poor woman who'd never even been to a blockade, Judy's girlfriend, had no idea what the hell she was in for. And in the morning, the fires went away, the 300 people came and we all got arrested, just about all of us, walked in the forest and we were just put in the panel vans. And then I remember going to Dorigo Watch House and there were two cells and I... There was there was 100 of us, I reckon, in each cell... And the cops came in and they didn't know what the hell was happening because we were in a circle giving each other a massage. And then next time they came in, it didn't have a roof on it. Does everyone, anyone remember that? And the, the cell had no roof. So we got hungry. So we climbed over the roof, went to the fish and chip shop, bought fish and chips, bought chocolate came back, fed everyone, and the police came in and there we were eating fish and chips and chocolate. They were like gobsmacked. Where the hell did you get that from? <laughs> and then um, they were processing us and there was Richard Jones, I remember the MP, had to go back on the plane and what? And he'd, um, he'd actually um, thought up this process. We each had a number to get processed and there was hundreds of us so it was going to take all day and all night. So we bribed each other for our number and I was number 10 so that meant I was going to get processed really quickly. So 
Richard Jones swapped his tie, which I still have to this very day, and I'm very proud of it. Um, I think that's enough. Thank you. Catherine, you're at the Northeast Forest Alliance 30th anniversary. Um, anecdotes from blockades. So we're about to cut into Mike King's music box two hours. Um, Mike has kindly allowed us to take his slot today. So we will continue broadcasting from Bungawalbin with the Northeast Forest Alliance 30th anniversary um, on River FM and the Environmental Is Anything program with Sean and Jeff. In 1989, we'd taken them to the Land and Environment Court and forced them to do an EIS. So this time they were coming in again in 93 and we thought, no, I'm not going to put up with this the pollution of the river and the stream that flows through my property. And But the problem was we couldn't take them to court until the river was actually polluted. So anyway, it was a, a drought in 93. It was a 92, 93 drought. And they were up there starting to log and... The silt was about this high, it was so dry, you know, it was about a metre deep of loose, fine silt. And um, anyway, we did a bit of a protest. We didn't um, have a, um, we didn't have any tripods or anything like that, but we're up there with placards and a lot of us got up there and trying to stop them. But um, so anyway, it was dry as anything, but one day it rained. And I thought, oh, my God, it's going to pollute. <laughs> I've got to get down to the river and have a look. So I rushed down there. Sure enough, there was a whole lot of silt in one of the pools. And um, I thought, oh, this is the evidence we've been waiting for, you know. Like, So I stripped off, went into the water and took some samples. And um, we had to have proof that they were real samples and all that sort of stuff. So I had someone there taking a photo of me. And anyway, I'd taken my pants off and everything. And I was in there in my underpants and <laughs> taking this sample, getting photos taken. And I didn't realise that I had, like, I couldn't believe when I saw it afterwards that I must have been down to the last pair. I had, didn't have much water and, you know, I mustn't have been able to do any washing and I dragged some undies out of the back of the drawer and, like, here they are, like, all wet and hanging off me and everything. And, and um, so this photo, you wouldn't believe... It's hung around all this time and it's still in things, this photo of me taking this sample in the worst undies I've ever had on. Like, <laughs> proof, you know, and it's still being used in various things. <laughs> so get rid of it, will you? <laughs> but um, so that was it and we got the evidence. We took them to court and we won the court case and stopped them logging. Thank you, Joy. And another quick, um, another quick story from Jeremy. And then you've got another one, Kath. Have you? We'll be just be quick and come on after Jeremy. Okay, yeah, Jeremy Bradley. Um, we had a little blockade uh, for a while up on uh, Mount Warning, on the western side of Mount Warning. Pretty damn hairy it got too. Uh, we had John Laws sort of inciting the loggers to come up the uh, hill and and smash us. And yeah, it was a uh, got a got a bit. Uh, uh, David Bradbury, David Bradbury was there uh, taking footage for his movie, 
and uh, and we got um, uh, very friendly with the Channel Seven News crew. Now, when they left, they gave us uh, some Channel Seven caps and some Channel Seven T-shirts and some Channel Seven nightly news door stickers. Well, you know, being a entertainer and always appreciating the uh, the benefit of having a few props, you know, like I squirrelled those away and and David Bradbury and I went from there down to uh, Wild Cattle Creek and as someone's mentioned, the forest was closed, lock gate. Well, out came the uh, Channel 7 nightly news stickers and they went on the doors and... Uh, T-shirts and Channel 7 nightly news caps and we approached the, uh, the, the police lines there and the lock gate and uh, they just waved us through and to this day I have no idea what they thought Channel 7 nightly news was doing in an old beat-up Corolla uh, <laughs> station wagon but, <laughs> but they waved us right on through and we went in there and, and that's how we got some of those really beautiful scenes in David Bradbury's movie, uh, Loggerheads. Thank you very much. Yeah, Loggerheads. I actually took him all around the edges of Mount Warning uh, in a caldera in that old uh, automatic uh, gearbox uh, Corolla station wagon. It's amazing where that thing went. But I think the funniest story I've got from Wild Cattle Creek is, uh, is the action we did on the, uh, on the lawns of the Coffs, Coffs Harbour um, forestry offices. Was anyone at that one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was so funny. Um, all these beautiful little rainforest ceilings because we sort of figured that Figured that um, yeah, if the uh, if the state forest didn't know how to manage a rainforest, then we'd give them one. And uh, and so there was all these really lovely little rainforest seedlings that have been beautifully raised and tenderly nurtured, and they're all from locally sourced seeds and everything. And we got there about one o'clock in the morning and proceeded to plant a rainforest. Uh, Coffs Harbour forestry offices uh, were up the top of a big grassy slope that sort of went down towards the uh, the uh, Coffs Harbour marina. And by dawn, we had all these trees all beautifully put in the the grass um, and and watered and mulched and and uh, and then the police arrived, which was um, yeah pretty funny in itself. But I'll just hand over. That's my little yarn from Wild Cattle Creek. That was Jeremy Bailey. We've got Kath Eaglesham. Island move on to the next year without mentioning it. In 1992, NIFA and the Bundjalung went to Sydney and we had this huge action to stop the natural resources package out the front of Parliament House and it was massive and we had enough people that we could actually hold hands in a great big circle around the whole of Parliament House. We were camped on the lawns. We had a wedding with um, Flo who was in one of the pipes with Catherine at Shailundi and Viking got married and the uh, Bundjalung did a corroboree there and it was really huge with all the speakers and so that was another great milestone in Anifa time. Yes, the interesting thing about that Coffs 
We're at the Northeast Forest Alliance 30th anniversary in the Bungawalbin, brought to you by River FM and Environmental as Anything. Um, we are about to go into Mike King's program, the music box, but Mike has very kindly and generously allowed us to keep broadcasting through his time slot. So we will be here until 7 o'clock tonight. I'm going back to the NEFA. Pre-95, oh gosh. Could go on forever. We haven't done the Forest yeah, Embassy. Susie Russell. So, okay, take it away, Linda. Hi, Linda Gill. Um, I want to pick up on the, uh, the resource package. That resource package was amazing. There were so many blockades going on. There was so much happening. And then they threw this resource package at us. And that's what they keep doing, throwing more and more at us. So we took it on. We went to Sydney. And the other thing that happened, one of the things that we did was we got out the back in the domain and on the hour we put our calls out. There was Powerful Owl. There was Tiger Call. There was Glider. And on the hour we were diligent. We played them and they echoed through the city. And you would, what we found in the end was on the hour they would dribble out. They would dribble out onto their little balconies, the politicians, and they would all come out and they would listen. And here we were. We'd actually moved into Sydney pre-taking over the forest, uh, Forestry Commission. Um, the other thing I wanted to speak about too is that it, we weren't just in the forest on the blockades. We were in the courts and we were in the politicians' office. And we had... We had politicians in there. We had crossbenchers who actually were, were brave, saw what was happening, and they worked with us. Um, so there was a lot of us out there knocking on politicians' doors. And at what point can we talk about the hard-drawn maps, converting them to a geographical system? When does that come into Ireland? Are we a little bit? We're not up there yet. Okay, all right. I just wanted to talk about that and about that. The, the resource package. And it took a bit of time, but we worked with all the environment groups. We came together, we took over out, we took over Parliament House. And that day that we took over Parliament House and we were holding hands, it went before Parliament. And that bill failed. It failed because it just could not stand. But since that day, that package has been systematically implemented. And since Howard and people like Baird have got in, they have systematically started to reintroduce this. We're now seeing it in different forms, but it was amazing. So when we, and then we went from Sydney, then we went to the Forest Embassy in Canberra. We also had the stump trucks. Have we talked with the stump trucks? Oh. Susie, we'll have to hand you back to Susie, but I just wanted to talk about the natural resource package. That was Linda Gill. We're going back to Susie Russell. Once you start telling stories, there are just so many that keep on coming out. So here you go, Jane. You can have another go. <laughs> Thank you. I forgot to say, I'm Jane Watson and I've lived in Elands for 33 years now and Kempsey before that and... I actually learnt to love forests because a mob of us outcasts in Maclay Valley, i.e. hippies and curries, we used to ride up to Thora every year for the Bishop's Creek Cup and we'd take a different route every year and just 
plodding along on your horse, you see things. And that's when I really started to get an appreciation of forest. And you never stop learning. That's what I reckon. Um, like Kath, when she said, when I went to Mummel, I thought, oh my God, what a inferior sort of forest. Because I was used to old growth being huge. And it's not there because the climate's different. You just keep adding to your information, I think. But I've got a couple of um, funny stories. One was compartment two and um, everybody was up the hill on tripods and rock things and I think I had to pee so I was walking down the road and I went past um, Rhonda O'Neill, the president of the Forest Protection Society, I think. Oh, and that woman had been getting up my nose for I can't tell you how long. Anyway, she was talking on a mobile phone, one of those huge early brick things. And I did have dreads, I must say. Anyway, I'm walking past and she says, I can't talk. There's a feral walking past. And that was it for me. I just swung around and said, Madam, I am not a feral. I'm president of the Elands P&C and strode off down, strode off down the road. And she just going, what? Um, yes, I think that's all for this time, except like many people have said, it's been a lifelong, almost lifelong family that we've all found. And it's just our love of trees, our fabulous sense of humour, which I think has got us out of so many sticky situations. Um, and here we all are, unfortunately, still having to do it. But here we go. Thank you, Jane. You're listening to Environmental as Anything on River FM. We are broadcasting from Bungawalban State Forest, well, Bungawalban area, at the NIFA 30th birthday anniversary. So we are about to go to the Lock On Players. Hello. <laughs> okay, so we've got a few songs we've been practicing from the Lock On CD. Now, before we start, I want to let you know that there are a very limited numbers of these Lock On CDs left. We have 29 at last count. Uh, if you have uh, any desire to uh, to capture the, the glorious uh, you know sounds that uh, that have accompanied this campaign over the decades, uh, the lock on CD is your best bet. We have them here at the stall today, and people are welcome to buy them. And uh, their, their contributions will be most uh, welcome. They're fifty dollars each because they are collector's items. These are the original pressings from 1999, which were found in the vault and very generously donated by Andy Parks for our uh, for, for NIFA. So Andy Parks, who produced the whole CD in the first instance. Yes, thank you, Andy. Um, if you are impoverished or stingy and you uh, just want to uh, download the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the lock-on CD, you can do so from Bandcamp. So check out the NIFA's Bandcamp uh, site, which uh, includes all of the tracks from the lock-on CD on it now. Anyway, just a little promo plug before we get going. You're listening to this broadcast out of Bungawalban. This is NIFA's 30th anniversary.
next song is written by one of our dear friends who is no longer here. Her name is Natalie Fowler. And she wrote this song when she had her baby, Kudra. And um, Kudra's father is here. Aidan Ricketts is here today too. So this is in memory of Natalie and the beauty of uh, what she was going through it, being so sad about what she saw happening to the planet whilst having a child and bringing a child into this world. It's called Born in This Time. It's time. 